we come to part two of First Peter chapter three, verses eight through twenty-two. And in the first part last week, we looked at specifically verses eight through fifteen, and we saw how conquerors love one another. This unity of mind, this sympathy, this brotherly love, a tender heart, that shared compassion and gut reaction toward one another, and then how conquerors speak to their enemies, how we speak words of hope, even when we are persecuted, and even when people revile and slander us, we respond by speaking hope. And so we come now, we'll focus in on verses 16 through 22, but we'll start reading here at verse 13. Hear the very words of God from 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may have noticed our text this morning includes perhaps the most challenging passage in all of the New Testament. And we will turn our attention to that as we get to verses 18 through 22. It's the kind of thing that I would like to skip. But we are convicted and convinced that all of God's word is fruitful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, that all of God's word contains words of life, and therefore we go through every word as we go through First Peter. You may remember while we were in the Gospel of Mark, or maybe you remember from your own reading of Scripture that Peter is famous for his three denials of Christ. Someone like Peter could not comprehend how the Messiah was supposed to suffer. Because when Jesus had told Peter that he was going to suffer and be killed and raised, Peter rebuked him. And then as he encountered the suffering, he denied him. Peter does not, did not at that point understand how suffering might go together with the salvation of the Messiah. But as we come to his letter now, he has grown as a Christian. He has matured and we see that he now understands far more deeply than he did in the Gospels. We see a mature faith on his part and a more heavenly perspective on the trials of the world 
Because so much in his letter so far, he's been challenging Christians to view suffering as, a part, as part and parcel of living in a godless world. In other ways, he's told them that their job is not to rise in earthly victory before they die, but to wait for the victory that Jesus has already won. A Christian's job is to live in suffering, in submission to God, and to speak and act honorably through it. So, as we look at verses 16 through 22 in particular, we'll be looking first at how conquerors suffer, and then we'll look at how conquerors win. So let's look at how conquerors suffer, starting in verses 16 and 17. Now, to even say conquerors suffer sounds like a counterintuitive uh, claim to many people. Our world does not view conquerors as people who suffer, but as people who have it easy and who are on top. But Peter has told Christians that even when you face suffering, you are a conqueror and you speak words of hope. And even when you speak these words of hope to a dying world, the way that you endure your suffering will either support those claims that you make in your word of hope, or they will deny those claims that you make when you speak words of hope. We prove that we believe in the hope of Christ when we endure faithfully and confidently through even the most direct attacks. When you go to calling hours at a funeral and you see a believer who has just lost their beloved spouse of many years, what do you say? What can be said? Please don't say, how are you doing? Please don't say, stay strong. Please don't say, God has a purpose. No, don't, don't, don't say this. I heard one good comment one time, though. And it was, I'm so sorry. I'm praying for you, but you're doing this really well. Now, now don't, don't lie if they're not doing it well, but, but the concept is you can suffer well. Even in the most dire of sufferings, we can suffer well. How do you suffer well? Well, Peter lays out a few things here. Now, granted, this is a different kind of suffering. This is a suffering induced specifically by standing as a Christian in a world that is in conflict with Christianity. This is specifically for those who are persecuted for their faith. But the concept of suffering and our attitude towards suffering can be carried through all instances of suffering. So, first of all, how do Christians suffer well, even when we are reviled by a world that hates us? Well, verse 16 tells us we do it with a good conscience with a good conscience. We live without guilt, without false guilt, because we've been cleansed in Jesus. So we have a clean conscience and a good conscience from God. And there's another element to it, and is that we also act in a way that is consistent with a good conscience before God. So the the way that we relate to our God should come through in how we relate to the world around us. Um, Ed Clowney puts it this way, the clear conscience of justified sinners indeed frees them for witness, but the impact of their witness will require the outward evidence of consistent lives. By maintaining a clear conscience before God, we will be able to show a godly life to others. Brothers and sisters, we have one Lord, and it is Christ, and we must live with a good conscience with that reality. We must live consistently 
between this, this, this Lord that we claim as we set, set him apart as Lord in our hearts, we must also act as if he is Lord in our hearts and therefore have a clear conscience about how we act and what we believe. To put it concisely, if we believe the words of hope we speak, then we will suffer well with a good conscience. But if we don't believe the words of hope that we speak, then we will be overcome by our sufferings or respond to them with evil. And that does not flow from nor create a good conscience. Even in instances of unjust treatment, Christians cannot remove Christ from the throne of their hearts and their lives. That should be first and foremost in our conscience. Peter says that Christians suffer for righteousness sake. Now this is going back to verse 14, but he reiterates it in verse 17 for doing good. Christians are to act righteously. That is consistent. That is integrity with what we proclaim. That is a good conscience. And now that we live with that clear conscience before God, we can live with that clear conscience toward our fellow man. We are enabled to live lives of righteousness because the spirit of Christ has united us to him and fills us with resurrection strength. And so then our job is to seek to do good and to live righteously, even if it means we're going to be persecuted for it. We are rooted in Christ. We have the hope of the truth vindicating us. On that last day, we have the spirit. We have all the tools we need to do good and to suffer for it. Because we have a clear conscience before God. And Peter makes it clear Christians are not to suffer for doing evil. If you go and break the law and receive a speeding ticket for it, that is not the kind of suffering Peter is speaking of. How inconsistent and unfitting would it be for Christians to share the word of hope that they have in Christ because Christ is Lord in their hearts and then go and do evil. That witness would destroy the gospel in the eyes of those friends and neighbors and co-workers and family members and children who are watching us. Let us not be sufferers for the evil that we do. But if the world should choose to persecute us and slander us because of the good we do, that is a blessed thing. And that is a good thing. And so we endure. Because even these things are God's will. Verse 17 tells us, It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Sometimes God wills for his children to suffer. Remember, in chapter 1, Peter told us that our faith will be tested by fire so that it will prove to result in praise and glory and honor as a genuine faith in the believer. And all this is consistent with the fact that God's power, chapter 1, verse 5, God's power is guarding you through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Sufferings cannot separate us from God, but in fact, show us that our faith is being grown by the Spirit within us. And in this we rejoice, whatever God's will might be. So when, when we're enduring the most difficult of circumstances, if we can pause and regroup with a heavenly perspective and look at our lives and say, whatever God wills, we thank Him for it. That's the sign of a Christian's deep trust in a God of goodness. A God who is good at all times, even when it feels like it and even when it doesn't. And this is what Peter wants his readers to grasp. As he anticipates mounting antagonism toward Christ and toward his people, even these things are not contrary to God's will, for he works all these things for good for those who love him. 
and mention this briefly, and it was a part of last week's sermon, but fits really well here, and it's the reminder that as we suffer, it is a gracious thing. Peter says it's a gracious thing. This word gracious means blessed. And he said to the, the, the household servants, it's a blessed thing if you suffer for doing what is good. And that was supposed to apply to all the hearts of all the Christians as they listen. But in case there are hard hearts or, or dense minds like, like me, Peter reiterates it and says, this is for all Christians, all of you. Even for you, it is blessed if you suffer. It's an opportunity for increased godliness, for growth in all the ways that matter. Because we grow in trust in God's will. We grow in our dependence upon Christ's righteousness. And we grow in severing our hearts from the world. And it makes us able, as Peter says, to follow in Christ's steps. I'll share uh, a quick story. While I was in seminary in Massachusetts, um, my mom had been in the hospital for a longer and longer stay, months at this point, and things weren't improving. She had cancer. And I remember getting the call from Dad while I was standing on Elliott Street in Massachusetts. I got a call from Dad, and he said, we're done with the treatments. Nothing's worked. She's going home. Let me again reiterate, this is not a perfect parallel to what Peter's talking about because my mom did not face death as a result of her Christianity. But again, our hearts toward our suffering need to be the same no matter what the suffering comes from. Um, We did, though, at times question painfully why such a faithful woman would be allowed to suffer such a difficult trial. But she suffered because of the curse of the fall, and therefore cancer had overtaken her body. And what my dad said on the phone, I'll I'll get there quickly, briefly to tell you what he said. Uh, What my dad said on the phone equally applies to any type of suffering. And so I hope that you, too, if you're suffering right now, can take encouragement from what I'm about to say Whether you're facing poor health with no end in sight or whether you're simply keeping your head above water daily as you pour yourself out every moment of every day for your spouse and your kids and your work or whether you've labored long and hard at relationship growth and it just isn't working. All these things share in common one benefit. And it's not, I'm not speaking simply of the benefit that comes when we reach heaven, because there is an immediate blessing. And it's not just that we are waiting for something. There's a blessing right now, right here, as things are difficult. And it stretches our faith, and it makes us able to do what my dad said on the phone as I stood in the street. After telling me that this was the beginning of the end for my mom, He used these words. He says, this is an opportunity. And I, in my sinfulness, was angry that he might view it this way. Yeah, right. And I yelled at him in anger that they had given up the fight for mom's life. But here's what he said. This is an opportunity to be like 
Christ in how we suffer. This is an opportunity to be like Christ in how we suffer. What is it that you're enduring? You can suffer it like Christ did. There is blessing. What a gracious thing to get to respond like Christ would as we endure even the difficult things. This is a gracious thing, a blessed thing. And it confirms in us as we suffer and suffer like Christ, it confirms in us all the promises of life to which we cling when we can see that this suffering is a blessing from God that makes us more like Christ and, and that it is far more important and meaningful for us to become more like Christ than to have an easy life without pain. And to think that proves that we believe that message of hope that we proclaim. And it reinforces it, and we grow in it. Brothers and sisters, Peter knew this, but this is the life God has called us to. And it is a life as sojourners to endure what is uncomfortable. And even though at times suffering will win temporarily... We get to live in that trial like a conqueror, like the conqueror, because we are united to him in his suffering and in his victory. Ed Clowney puts it again this way. Suffering has become an opportunity to meet evil with good and cursing with blessing. Peter describes the triumphant witness of this response. It's triumphant. It's how conquerors suffer. We suffer well. We suffer with our eyes set on Christ, leaning upon him. Now, suffering is a result of the fall. I I don't know what kind of suffering you're enduring right now. As you endure it, it hurts, and there will be tears, and there will be heartache, and there will be pain, but God has promised to be with us through it. The famous Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You know, that rod is a rod of correction. That's difficult. And they comfort us. It comforts us when God disciplines his children. And then in the famous verses of Psalm 23, when you pass through the waters, God doesn't say, I will take you out. He says, I will be with you as it is hard. God hates what sin has done to the world. He hates suffering more than we do. How do we know that? Because he gave up his only son to enter into our suffering to take us out of it. To bear the heaviest weight of suffering ever known in all eternity and to redeem his people out of sin and out of suffering. And he has prepared for us a place where there will be no more tears, nor sorrow, nor pain forever. If we can remember that, that's the beginning of suffering like a conqueror. So, how do conquerors win? Why can we even call Christians who suffer conquerors? Well, we see this in verses 18 through 22. 
And we look at how Jesus suffered, and that's where Peter goes. And it's important that we look at how Jesus suffered because it matters, because we are united to Christ. We have union with Christ. If you believe in him, if you have set your faith on Jesus Christ and on him alone to be your salvation, to pay for your sins, you are united to him and his spirit helps you cling to him. And Christ and his sufferings, although he was killed by men in this world unjustly, For doing good, he emerged victorious. He emerged the true conqueror. Verse 18 tells us that his sufferings bring us to God. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. If you have not trusted in Christ, your sins keep you from him. But Christ can bring you to God. It is in Christ that you set your hope and Christ bids you come and trust in him because he suffered once for your sins so that you will not have to pay that eternal cost for your sins. Sin is not your conqueror. Christ is sin's conqueror and you with Christ have no condemnation. And because he won, we share in his victory. And now... Peter throws us for a loop. Verses 19 and 20, they seem to be so disconnected. So let's let's look at verses 19 and 20 and what's going on here. Again, perhaps the most difficult verses in all of the New Testament, perhaps the whole Bible. There are so many various interpretations of what's happening in these verses as it speaks of Christ preaching to spirits in prison. The Greek is complex. The reference are complex. Questions like, when did Jesus proclaim? When did he preach? To whom? Did he preach? And and who are the spirits in prison who formerly did not obey? And and what did he say? There are an estimated 180 different combinations of views based on answers to these questions. Let me give you the three main views really quickly so that you can get a sketch of how faithful Christians have interpreted these verses. First view is the view that Jesus descended into hell. Between his death on Friday and his resurrection on Sunday, Jesus went to hell to preach to the people described in Genesis 6 as the time of Noah. At the time of Noah, he preached to them, those who were described as incredibly wicked, he preached to them. And this interpretation would indicate that for at least one generation of sinful people, there was a chance of coming to trust in Christ after death. For various theological, exegetical, and lots of historical problems or reasons, this is a problematic view and unlikely to be what Peter was referring to. You'll notice even in our Westminster Standards, uh, as the, the understanding of that phrase in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell, does not refer to this. It refers to the place of the dead, to, to death, simply death, and that is most likely what was meant by that phrase when it was written originally. That's view one. The second um, most popular view, um, not necessarily in any order of popularity, but um, view two here is that Jesus, Jesus preached to the spirits in prison, specifically those who were on the earth at the time of Noah were spirits in prison, and Jesus preached to them through Noah. So at that time, Of Genesis 6, Jesus was preaching through Noah their condemnation, yet also showing salvation through the ark. And Hebrews 11.7 says says specifically, 
by faith, Noah condemned the world. And so this view says that through Noah, Jesus was preaching to those spirits in prison. This view has lots of support from early church history, and it has notably fewer theological problems than the descent into hell view. But there are a couple words that are a bit off, uh, that we would have to hold intention to take this view confidently. And the third view, this is a more recent view and um, perhaps the most popular today. And this third view is that Jesus proclaimed, that is preached, his victory over even the cosmic enemies of the physical and spiritual realms as he ascended into heaven in his victory over death. After he had resurrected and, and ascended to heaven, he then preached to all those, even those spirits who were on earth at the time of Noah, who witnessed the ark, received their condemnation as spirits of evil. And Noah had originally preached condemnation, but Jesus delivered that complete declaration of their condemnation and his victory as he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And this would be consistent with an understanding of Revelation that says that Satan was bound during Jesus' resurrection, and so were his demons. So therefore, these spirits in prison were chained as Christ rose victorious over evil. But which view is correct? Probably not the first one, but there's a reason that this is one of the most difficult passages in all of the New Testament. I'm not going to say that one necessarily is absolutely correct. We don't know. But here's what we do know. And it's so important not to get tunnel vision on this verse, on these two verses while we're reading the whole book. It's really important to make sure that we're letting the verses that come before and the verses that come after help us understand the trajectory that Peter is taking. We must let first Peter interpret itself. We must remember to read the larger direction of this letter, and that will shed light, at least on the purpose of this passage, even if not the specific referent, as Peter wrote. Here's what we know. Peter uses this to show that Jesus is the victor. Jesus is the conqueror over all powers and all authorities. Look at verse 22. Peter's going to this and he uses this point to build to verse 22. The resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. He's using an illustration to show Christ's power over evil. And although it appeared that he was defeated as a criminal on earth, he is not only alive, but victorious through his resurrection from the dead and his ascension in victory over his enemies. And at a very practical level, the second thing we know about this passage is that Peter is using it to create a sense of comfort for his readers. He wants the Christians who are enduring suffering in Asia Minor, to take heart. Take heart. This is of Christ, a telling of Christ's victory. And you're invited to be a part of this victory. Jesus, too, suffered unjustly and died. But in his resurrection power into which you're baptized, and in his ascension to God's right hand, he has provided that way of salvation that not only declares him the conqueror over all enemies of spiritual or earthly kinds, but also saves for himself a people who become with him conquerors through that resurrection power of Jesus. 
And so Peter talks about how this relates to them, and he starts to speak of baptism. Baptism is that sign and that seal of salvation in Jesus, of that covenant blessing. And Peter goes to tie Noah to the salvation of which he speaks. Now, you may have noticed that Peter's writing to Christians in Asia Minor. And the traditional site of Noah's Ark is a landing on a mountain in Asia Minor. Now, whether that's defensible or not, um, that was popular, a popular view in those times. And so if anybody in Asia Minor, Asia Minor, even the Gentiles, were to know a Bible character, they would have known Noah. He was well known. There were many flood stories. Uh, but Noah in particular even had about 50 years on Roman currency. Noah and his wife were imprinted on a coin, on two coins over 50 years, not long after the time that this letter was written. He was well known. And they knew him to be a man of righteousness. This traditional understanding of him, uh, this cultural understanding, he was a man of righteousness who preached righteousness to their ancestors. And some thought that Noah was the father of all those who lived there and were from Asia Minor. So, was Peter looking, as he's talking about salvation, was he looking for a, a water story to tie to the waters of baptism? Or was he speaking of a, a man of righteousness that the people would have understood? Perhaps both. He's writing to them to help them understand that there is a line between the realm of salvation and the widespread wickedness. Noah and the ark, the eight persons in the ark, there's a line of delineation between them and the world of judgment around them. Just like for these Christians in Asia Minor, they are few and they are being persecuted, yet they too can be safely brought through even as the world around them is filled with judgment and destruction. And it speaks of victory amidst suffering. Peter says, verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Many have taken this to mean that the act of baptism itself saves, but he immediately contradicts that interpretation with the next phrase, not as a removal of dirt from the body. He's saying it's not the actual removal of dirt and the washing of the dirt that saves you. What is it about baptism? It is this appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is that sign and that seal of that good conscience before God. And where do you get a clean conscience and a good conscience if it's not washed by Jesus himself? And in his resurrection power and his victory over sin and death, you too are freed from a conscience of guilt and sin. Noah was saved through the waters of judgment and you are saved through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead amidst the judgment of God poured out against ungodly, ungodliness and it is seen and sealed in baptism. Therefore, baptism, which signifies this cleansing of conscience, isn't just something that we do to get into salvation or into the body of Christ. No, it is something that has perpetual meaning and perpetual effects on our lives. The significance of baptism is not limited to the time of its application. When you get wet in your baptism and then dry off an hour later, the power of baptism has not 
dried off. We remember as sojourners that we have been marked by baptism. And that long confession of faith that we read today is so filled with encouragement. Let me repackage it for you. In baptism, we become those who have given up our names to Christ. You're no longer marked by the world. You are now marked by Christ. You are His. It indicates to the world whose we are and where our identity lies. When we see other people baptized into Christ's bride, as we witness baptisms here in this room, it reminds us of our own baptism, that we too are heirs of life and that we possess that same spirit and that enables us to live in brotherly love toward one another. And it empowers us to resist temptation. And when we seriously and thankfully consider the nature of our baptism, we're humbled for our sinfulness and how we deny our baptism so often, but we grow all the more assured of that hope that Peter tells his readers to cling to even in the face of unjust sufferings. So what do the story of Christ's preaching to these spirits in prison in Noah's Ark and baptism, what do they mean for Peter's readers? It says in verse 14, as he intros this whole concept, he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. We don't fear those powers around us anymore. Christ is victorious over them. We don't fear those who persecute us. We have victory over all opposition in Christ the conqueror. We usually cannot conceive of anything good coming from suffering. We automatically think that suffering is inherently evil. And that's because suffering is a result of sin and death, and it attacks things that are good. So where is that blessing? It comes from the conqueror who redeems our trials into good. All things work together for good for those who love God and nothing Not even what you are enduring right now, brothers and sisters, can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There is that special grace that Peter speaks of for those who suffer specifically for the name of Jesus. A special identity with our suffering Savior. When our suffering comes as a direct result of acting and speaking like a Christian, many of you, if not all of you, stand on biblical truth here in the tides of ungodliness around us. I've heard stories and I've seen examples among you. But that contrast between us and the world is only going to grow more and more stark the longer we grow in Christ-likeness in the kingdom of light as we are surrounded by that kingdom of darkness. If, when standing upon Jesus, a Christian is beaten for his faith, and we may see that, in our own communities, before we realize it. Still, that believer gets to see all the more clearly what Christ endured, as Christ conquered the enemy, as Christ suffered for doing good. And it becomes an honor to be treated like Jesus was. And it's a privilege in that moment to see oneself upheld by that same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead who will carry you too in his resurrection power to the right hand of God while your enemies are subjected under Jesus' feet. Peter, the denier, three times had the honor, it was a gracious thing, to suffer for the name of Christ. He was crucified, yet saw himself unworthy of that honor, 
So he was crucified upside down. He saw. The one who could not understand how a Messiah could save through suffering, he saw the blessedness of suffering like our Savior. And Jesus says, perhaps these words were running through Peter's head as he was on that cross. Jesus says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. If we respond in despair and anger and resentment toward fellow men and toward God, then the trials defeat us. And we're not conquerors. We prove instead that our hearts never truly leaned upon the everlasting arms. But when we respond with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and and on and on, even in the tears, then we suffer like Christ and we prove that the Spirit is alive and well within us. Let's no longer be surprised or resentful when we face suffering, when life is difficult, and let's not be downcast. When a trial comes your way, rejoice and give thanks in it. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Peter has said, live like Christians in this world, do good, speak the gospel, and be prepared to receive the blessing of suffering for Christ's sake. After all, Romans 6 reminds us that we are baptized into Christ's suffering so that we might rise with him in victory. There is no other victory in the end. So let's see that powerful work of Christ. He was resurrected from the dead so that we might be resurrected from the dead. He ascended to God's right hand where he intercedes for us. And from there, he will come again to bring us to reign with him. All powers, all authorities, even angels and even enemies are subject to him. In the conqueror, brothers and sisters, with faith in Christ, you too are made a conqueror. Let's pray. Gracious God, we need you. We depend upon you. We cannot endure this life on our own. And we have no hope without our blessed Jesus. Build us firmly upon him. Build us up together as this church into a house with Christ as our head that we might rise victorious with Christ as he has risen victorious on our behalf. Strengthen us in your spirit to the glory of Christ in whose name we pray, amen.